2: I work at LSE with a lot of happiness economists and they always talk about this makes you happy, that makes you happy. And I really don't believe them, even though they are my good friends. And what I really think about is if folk can think about what their values are and live life with, with that's their integrity as they've defined themselves. So live life in that particular way and work in that particular way. Find a job that really aligns with your values, whatever they are.
3: My God, first and foremost, what a great book.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really, I'm kind of so pinching myself that I actually managed to publish a book, to be very honest. So I'm really proud of it.
3: It's right on my street. So it's uh, it's going to be a great conversation. I think one of the things I'd like to know a little bit to begin with is, in respect to your own background, what's maybe the driving factors that, um driven you to do the work that you do today?
2: It's really strange. So, you know, I kind of started out my career without knowing, I guess, what I wanted to do. And, you know, I think if you've read the book, you'll see that, but I, I really didn't have a very, very clear idea But I've always been pulled back to look at inequality. So I've always been pulled back to look at inequality, not necessarily through a lens where um, we should be thinking about the welfare system. And I think we absolutely should be thinking about the welfare system, um, but also thinking about equality with respect to opportunities. You know, so I come from a a working class background. I was the first person in my um, house to go to college. And really, I didn't know much about the journey. And, and, and I think in some ways I, it's, it's an accident that I'm talking to you today and it's an accident that I ended up working for the LSE. And I'd like to make what happened to me, which I do think was blind luck on occasions, much more systematic when it comes to opportunities for people like me in the UK and Ireland and even even beyond that, actually.
3: Yeah, I think it's, you know, you talk about in your book with regards to like luck versus effort. And, um, you know, I think that's a really poignant thing because I think when you do actually start doing things for yourselves and like start down this like this change journey that a lot of people kind of go on myself included there's a lot of like doubt I guess when you kind of go through that initial starting process and I think going through this podcast I'll probably follow a similar flow to your book in respect to how you set goals and the time and inside and out but mindset's key so one of the things I was interested in exploring to begin with is the um, element of fixed mindset versus versus growth mindset.
2: I think I am definitely somebody who thinks that I can probably do everything, probably badly, (laughs) a lot of these things, to be very honest. And I'm bad at so many things, but I always give something a go. Um, And I'm not somebody who's intimidated, actually, by being around people who are much better than me. So very often I put myself in rooms with people who are much smarter than me and more expertise than me. And I'll ask them lots of questions. And I think that really comes from a growth mindset. The idea that, you know, maybe I'm not going to be as good as them. Maybe I'm not going to reach the level that they've actually reached, but I can definitely get better and I can definitely learn more and I can definitely I can definitely grow. And I think in some domains in life, I'm much better at having a growth mindset than in others. So I see people, you know, I I always encourage people to think about, if you think about your health, if you think about your relationships, if you think about your work, it could be that you have growth mindsets in one or two of those. And in the other, you have a fixed mindset. And, And that kind of thought experiment is quite helpful as well. I think if you want to develop yourself.
3: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, one of the challenges that we do face, I guess, when you are going out alone or do things for yourself, like or even writing books, for example, you've got that kind of, the, you know, you talk about in your book about the anticipated loss aversion and why this is holding people back.
2: Yes, yes. So I think, you know, anticipated loss aversion, whether it's worrying about losing money, whether it's worried about losing ego, which I think is what holds a lot of people back a lot of the time, is definitely something that's worth paying attention to. I mean, the research on this is fascinating because it shows that when you anticipate a loss, it affects your psychology and your physiology much more than you actually realizing that loss so you know if, if i was to go for a promotion and not get it the experience of not getting it is much less than me worrying about not getting it beforehand and in some ways it's about I mean, i'm an anxious person so in some ways i think it is about controlling anxiety and i do stuff anticipated loss aversion quite a lot but i think it is about kind of teaching yourself that actually going through these things will firstly make it much easier but secondly removing your attention from the loss of is fundamentally really, really important because it can hamstring you in so many domains in life.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that you do talk about a lot within um, the book is the element of like me plus. So it'd be great to kind of firstly define that and also highlight why it's important to get into this me plus mindset.
2: So Me Plus is your vision of yourself in what if it all worked out. So, you know, so many many of us kind of think about our dreams and we put the constraints around them. So what would my partner say? I can't afford it. I don't have the time. And Me Plus is really just thinking what if it all worked out and I was to aim for that thing that didn't work out and putting a vision of it in your mind. And that vision kind of does two things. So firstly, it brings your future self forward. And I think a lot of the problems with people who dream big or who, have, who want to aim for something that's three or four years in the future is that it's not very tangible. So visualization, even though it might sound corny, is actually really helpful to kind of get you thinking about what you might actually be doing. But second, which is more fundamental to me, it also allows you to identify, if I hit that, if I was to be that person, what would I be doing on a day-to-day basis? And it allows you to take steps in order to move forward to that person. So whether or not it's, you know, you need to get experience public speaking, whether or not you need to hold a new skill, whether or not you need to expand your network. It allows you to get kind of razor sharp clear on what that might be. And then this whole idea of take small steps, which is fundamentally the most important part of the book, is set all around those tasks, getting experience of it and holding the skills that you need.
3: Exactly. And it's, it's, you know, also about taking control of your own destiny, right? And if you kind of look at what you describe in respect to the internal and external locus of control.
2: Before that, I must ask you, do you have a me plus that we should be keeping in mind during the, during Um, the conversation? So if, if I was to meet you in five years, what would you be doing?
3: So yeah, I've got I've got hopes and dreams that I want to ultimately progress. Like from the podcast um, perspective, I want to turn this into a real community. In respect to people listening to the podcast, uh, growing at the same time as I as I'm growing. So, like looking at how we use narrative, like I, I think that you know now is the perfect time to be speaking to people about what we stand for and believe in. And this is why, like. For me, the podcast came around. I want to kind of talk about topics that people don't generally talk about at this moment in time, but I know in time they will. You know, I've always been like an inquisitive character. If you were to look at my CV, for example, you'll see I've done lots of various different jobs. I've also written books as well. Like I've written two um, children's books. I'm unique in the fact that I don't tend to be fearful of things, but I'm very, very self-conscious and I doubt myself all the time and self-critical. So I think this kind of growth journey, and you know, that's probably why it resonated so so much when I was reading your book um, because I could put my finger on a lot of things that I do and some of the methods and techniques that you suggested were things that I will take forward in my own life. So um, yeah, I think where I want to head is more, to, more towards like more, more speaking about the changed society that we live in at the moment and um, the element of purpose and why it's key and why it's key to think akin to you think bigger and it, you can only achieve these large i guess these large issues that we face within society they can only be remediated by small steps towards the the greater goal so yeah this whole premise of journey versus um destination i'm not really a person that would fix on a destination i'm more concerned about the slow progression on a day-to-day basis and and the continued progression forward
2: Yeah. And I think actually what you do in the podcast is really great in that not only are you talking about things that are probably not being talked about elsewhere, but you're bringing together quite a diverse group of people to talk about those as well. And that's kind of the easiest way to come to a solution, isn't it, is to bring together um, diverse perspectives. You, something something um, you said reminded me of something which I'll say afterwards, but you did ask me about internal versus external locus of control. And I think, you know, one thing that I encourage people to do and think big is to really focus on what they can control. So at any one time in our lives, we can control, a lot about our environment or a little about our environment. So I think when I was setting off in my career, because I didn't have privilege of networks and privilege of an easy pathway through my career, I could probably control 20% of things and 80% were at the fate of others. So whether they gave me that opportunity, whether they gave me that goal, but controlling that 20% became really, really important and also reaching out to the people who could control the other 80%. And as I go forward in my career, that ratio has gotten has, has gone more in my favor. So now I can control probably about 80% of the things that I want to do and 20% is left up to chance. And I think for people who sit at home thinking that everything is happening to them, so basically they have this kind of external locus of control, Really realizing that it's not all or nothing. It's never all or nothing. There's always going to be external forces. There's always going to be internal forces. But to move ahead, it's really important, regardless of what situation that you find yourself in, whether you think you're being discriminated against, whether you're really kind of feeling financially insecure at the moment where you're getting bullied at work identifying those things that you are controlling firstly from a human psychological point of view has been found to be really valuable but it also allows you to move forward and move you out of the status quo that you want to get out of and towards an internal locus of control that actually is accurate so really kind of knowing that you can control what's going on around you and and when you were speaking it actually reminds me of something that I'm thinking about later that isn't lately that isn't in the book So the ratio of my time and and how I spend my time, whether or not I'm creating or being a consumer, I'm a terrible person for flopping in front of Netflix or just going to the pub and relaxing and enjoying myself. So I need to keep an eye on these on the kind of consumer side of me. But again, figuring out the balance that's right for you. So maybe you only want to create something 20 percent of the time and 80 percent of the time you want to be a consumer. That's absolutely fine. But as an individual, you should be consciously selecting into doing that, because I think in the world at the moment, so much comes at us. We have information overload. There's so many choices that we can actually make. You can kind of get carried on in your life without ever creating something for yourself. And that selection, I think, um, and empowering people to do that is something that I'm, I'm really interested in at the moment. So I don't know how to do it, aside from get, ask people to be mindful of their consumer versus creation um, ratios. But I think it's some work that I'm going to take on um, research wise.
3: Yeah, I think it's for me, it's very poignant because if you kind of look at what's taking place in society at the moment and you know that whole consume the ability to consume and not really continue a journey forward, it's you know, we can all get tied up in Netflix and Instagram, and you know, before you know it, it's like afternoon, and we're like, what the hell, where's that yeah. disappeared? But um, yeah, I think like we, we always have to kind of re- reflect on value, I guess, like the what in respect to content creation, like are we educating people? Are we educating ourselves? Are we adding value to our own journeys and to the journey journeys of others? And I think when you're able to kind of switch that mindset from being kind of individualistic to more like externally focused, um, facing the larger issues that we have within society at, at the moment, I think, then you can kind of galvanize movements for change. You can do that both individually and externally with, within your audience. And yeah, I think, and we also, we I guess we have to be, Aware of this as well, because you know it leads me into my next thing about time sinkers that you mentioned in your book. <laughs> we can get engrossed in topics that before we know it, we've kind of go down these like um, wormholes, and and we're kind of lost in um, the, the finer detail. But actually, in respect to the day to day, the um, the progression of our own journeys forward, like it's important to reflect on the the premise of time sinkers, and in your opinion, how we may go go forward and rectify them.
2: I think it's really so. So, one thing that I recommend people doing is a time audit over a week. And ideally, and it sounds painful, but ideally, 15 minute chunks of waking hours and figuring out what you're actually doing within those 15 minutes. And then once you've done that, kind of categorizing things roughly into three categories. So, the first are the things that you really enjoy doing. So, you you had happiness during it. So, they brought you joy. The second are ones that you did. um, Maybe they brought you joy, but they were investments in the future. So, like studying a new skill. Um, And the last are ones that actually you didn't really enjoy doing them. If you were to think back, you were just kind of blobbing out. And also they didn't serve your future. And one thing that I kind of ask people to do in Think Big is to that third category that are your time sinkers that aren't serving you, aren't serving anybody else, really try to eliminate them very, very cruelly. And, you know, for me... This was really about digital detox. So getting off emails, getting off surfing mindlessly, you know, shops and various things and really making it hard for myself because I found it so hard to come off it, but making my heart for myself to go on. it, so really increasing the cost in the present moment. And um, for other people, it could be something entirely different. But ideally, you want to get to a place where the only things you're engaging in are serving your future or the future of others, or you're getting joy in the moment or you're bringing kind of joy to others in the moment. But even beyond that, if everything you're doing is stacked towards the present day, maybe reassessing that. So, you know, if you look on the newspapers at the moment, there's so many strikes to do a pension, right, which is to do with what's going to happen to all of us when we're 65. And I'll be honest with you, I have no idea, Peter. I hope, if it, I hope it works out for the people who are, are striking. I'm really on their side. But it really kind of brings this idea that we need to think about our future And when we're 65, 75, 85, thinking about it actually does become become too late. So you can definitely have changes in your life at that stage. But if you start thinking now, how am I going to support myself in in five years' time? And more fundamentally, given the title of this podcast, what am I going to be doing? Because if you're miserable in your job right now, it's super cool and super freeing to think about what are my time sinkers? And now let's move some of that time to investing in honing something that will allow me be in a very different place in five years time and it might feel like it's a very long way away but if you do that consistently very very small chunks of time over five years you absolutely will accomplish what you want to accomplish it's that consistency trips us up as human beings
3: Yeah, exactly. And I'm forever talking to clients about the premise of proactive versus reactive. And now is like the time to be proactive with with change, and you know, be embracive of what's taking place around society. Listen to people's demands, and you know, be part of the solution rather than the problem. And I came across an amazing guy. um, I interviewed him for a podcast a little while back. A PT called Robbie Thompson, and he was the one that it was. I don't think did we cover it during the podcast. I'm not sure, but. If not, he was definitely the one that introduced me to the Pomodoro technique. And um, I I love that because I think, you know, you also talked about in the book. So maybe I'll hold back and let you chat about it.
2: No, no. I mean, it works. I think I think it really does work. So the idea behind the Pomodoro technique is that you can't actually concentrate for an incredibly long period of time. And if you're somebody who procrastinates a lot, one of the easiest way to get started is to take a very small amount of time. So say 15 minutes is, is, is how I run my Pomodoro technique. So I basically put on this timer. Mine actually is a, pom- uh, a, 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 a tomato for all the world, but you can get this on your iPhone and app, which is also, I'm told, very impressive. And you put it on for 15 minutes and you you all digital is out and you focus on what you're focusing on. And then when the alarm goes off, you must stop. And you stop for five minutes, walk around, get some air. And the idea behind that break is kind of twofold. So one, you're not stressed in that you have to work for a very, very long time, which is stressful for procrastinators. But two, there's something about the brain when you leave tasks that are unfinished will make you want to go back to that unfinished task. So there's something about us that doesn't want to leave things unfinished. So we itch to get back. Um, And I think kind of if you're somebody who has found it difficult to get started, trying these 15 minute bursts with the alarm, taking the break. And then maybe committing to that for two hours and then stopping and taking your day off like you normally would, taking your time synchronous like you normally would and building it up um, is a really, really impressive way to get things done.
3: For me, it works really well. So like I'm, I'm a big advocate of it and I've read in your book that you are too. So it's, um, it's also looking at that. And then I think the final element I'd like to chat about with regards to time is also... I'm a big advocate of um, surrounding yourself with people that lift you up rather than pulling you down, and when you kind of do that, you you kind of get a lot more value in those relationships. And one of the things within your book you mentioned is the Harvard study that um, I think it was Rosenthal Jacobson. That was really interesting. So, if you maybe want to chat a little bit about that,
2: yeah. So I mean, I, I mean. One thing that's very fascinating to me when it comes to imposter syndrome is the role that belief plays in tackling imposter syndrome for people. So if you went and talked to a psychologist, what they would say to you is that if you're somebody who's sitting in a room or or, or or in a situation maybe where you're public speaking and you feel that you don't belong, one of the best things that you can do is actually go to have a conversation with yourself and change the narrative. So in, on one hand, your brain is saying to you, look, you don't belong. Look at everybody else. They have better credentials than you. Um, you're going to make a fool of yourself, but then you have the willpower to have that conversation. And to be honest, having been somebody who's been in this situation, I don't think it works because I think if you're if you are feeling like you're an imposter in a particular situation, then it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to talk yourself out of it in that moment with all of the stress that's going on. So um, what you refer to is the idea that if somebody else believes in you, so if you have somebody like a hype body in your corner, if somebody else is there and they're consistently bringing you along and bringing you up, that belief can actually replace your own self-belief in the determinants of success. And that's really powerful. So it actually says that when we look at studies, that if we look at you know kids who were exposed to teachers, for example, who believed in them and they didn't believe in themselves, they did just as well as kids who actually believed in themselves. And the study that you're speaking about is a really classic study where these researchers went into a classroom um, with kids and they basically looked out into the classroom and they did some tests and the tests actually meant nothing. And they said to the teachers, we've identified budding geniuses, even though their grades are really bad at this particular moment in time. We've been able to identify through these tests, these budding geniuses. Um, And so what we would recommend really is, is, is bearing that in mind when you're teaching the class. And they gave them no other instructions. And the first thing to note is that these weren't budding geniuses. They had randomly selected people to be part of the study. So um, it, was, it was quite interesting that you had some kids that were doing incredibly badly of school who randomly ended up being part of the study. But when they went back to the kids some months and one year later, what they found was the people who they had picked out as these budding geniuses were doing incredibly well. And the only difference between them and the other kids was that the teachers had a belief that they were a budding genius and put input into them in that way. So I think for anybody who does feel underconfident, who suffers from imposter syndrome given that we can't randomly allocate you in a positive direction to a trial with a teacher who's going to give you self-belief, finding hype buddies is really important. And, you know, I've seen success even in my own students who have low self-esteem, who will for each other be hype buddies, because just because you've low self-confidence in yourself doesn't mean you can't do it for somebody else. And having somebody who knows when it's your big moment, letting you know that they believe in you, that they're there to actually practice the speech, that they're there to talk through problems having people like that in your life is really, really important. And I think it becomes even more important if you're going to be doing something that's out of what your social circle normally do, because it can feel quite challenging to kind of step outside and do things that your peers aren't doing and making sure that you have somebody in in your corner will will definitely help you um, get to where you want to go.
3: I guess one of the other things that I took from the book, I think it's in the inside chapter, I think it's chapter four, where you were talking about the peer um, study um, in respect to the cashiers in the US, in respect yeah. to how that determines, um, surround yourself determines performance as well. That Maybe if you want to elaborate a little bit more on that study.
2: Yeah, I mean, this one really fascinated me, actually. So, it basically, said that it was it was a, it was a, a, a supermarket randomised control trial as well, and, and the randomization is, is is quite key. So, people would actually be randomly sitting on particular cashier stalls. So, I've worked in a supermarket, so you can imagine turning up up for your day, and you're allocated to um, cashier twelve. And what they found were the people who were randomly allocated to be in the sight line of folk. Who were the best cashiers in terms of being the fastest and the most responsive to the customers lifted their gains when the high performers were around, and they actually went back to average when they couldn't see the high performers. And, you know, my background is in economics, and I think one of the the, the strongest results we have aligns with the study, which is called mean reversion, which basically says that if you are in a group, whether it's a group of workers, a cashiers, like this study, whether it's a group within your school, a group within your university, or a group within your, um, your place of work, and your ability, your performance, your skills are higher than the average, you're much more likely to come down to the average. But the opposite also works. If you expose yourself to people who are really good, in the case of the cashiers, really skilled at serving customers, or if you expose yourself to somebody who's really skilled in the direction that you want the chances of you mimicking their traits without you even realizing it are, are, are very, very high. So you absolutely increase the probability of you succeeding. Hence, coming back to me saying at the beginning of this, that I'm often in rooms where I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room. I think I give my be- myself the best shot of actually um, being productive on that day and actually learning something.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like it's about knowing and um, knowing that Actually, it's not a negative thing to be the, not the smartest person in the room, but actually knowing it can take a lot from those interactions. And, you know, it it does, you've seen it play out. And I, I see it with some of the clients that we work with when you kind of put good people together, like amazing things can happen. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about that kind of the whole putting the spotlight on people to give them the opportunity to show.
0: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you.
1: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: One of the other things that I was, yeah, definitely caught my eye when I was reading through is um, the element you talk about the dating theory to risk aversion, because I thought that was a really great example.
2: I've been thinking about this forever. I mean, I think, you know, when I was young in Ireland, girls never asked boys out on a date. So I appreciate maybe for people who are in their 20s now, they're saying, now we do. We're on, you know, we're on, we're on Tinder or we're on a matching app. But physically asking people out, I, am, I really still believe in society. It does lean more towards a man. So if you're in a bar, if you're in a restaurant, if you're in a supermarket, it's usually the gentleman will ask the woman. And it's, it's rarer. It's not zero, but it's rarer as vice versa. And I think if you think about what this actually does to boys when they're young, because they will get rejected, it gets them used to being rejected and it lowers their anticipated loss aversion. So it makes them much more likely to put their hand in the ring. And we see this, you know. Um, when people are hiring men are much more likely to apply for the job even when they don't reach the essential criteria for promotions they're much more likely to put themselves forward even when they don't reach, kind of meet the essential criteria and there is something about I'm going to try it and if it doesn't work out then I'm going to move on and it also comes true in the literature that men are much better at dusting themselves off and bouncing back after failing as compared to women again this all kind of stacks with them increasing their odds of being successful
3: I think it's also how we look at failure, in the yeah. re- in respect to this. a lot of people traditionally have looked at failure as um, as a negative, and I think it's it's just all part of that journey. As long as we take on board the positives and negatives as part of a continued journey in the process, then there's a lot we can take from it. One of the things that that was most poignant to me reading it because I I work predominantly from home is your element that you are dis, uh, discussing in respect to the environment because. Um, You know, like one of the difficulties working from home. We've got a a toddler and two very um, active Labradors that are currently sitting asleep in the next door, which is lucky. I I do actually find myself in situations where, yeah, like through interruption or whatever it may be, it's setting the environment. So I think the the rapid fire insights that you had to discuss in this particular chapter was really interesting.
2: Yeah. So, I mean you know if you look at the environmental literature on paper science it's actually quite badly developed there's a few stylized facts that won't surprise people so um, if you're trying to work being in a well-ventilated room is really really um, a really helpful thing to do the colors that you surround yourself really really matters so if you surround yourself with blue it's much more likely to make you creative if you need to kind of inspire yourself to be powerful red is, it tends to be a helpful color also the lighting matters so what I find quite um, interesting is that if you have very very sharp lighting it's much better for cognitive you know concentration so think about picking a mortgage or solving a hard math problem. Whereas if you want to be creative, you should dim the lights down. And I can see in the background, you have a plant. So I don't know whether you always had one or, but I'm going to take credit for it anyway. But they basically suggest that you should bring the outdoors in and have greenery. And, and this is something that I've massively failed at, to be very honest, because I kill everything. But okay. I do not have grassy heads, which are the, the little faces with the grass, which hopefully are giving me some uh, respite. But one of the kind of tenants under Think Big is that I think that people write studies and they study particular populations and the population may or may not represent you. So I really want people to experiment. So if you choose to hang a blue picture on the wall, think about, did you feel more creative on that day? If you choose to open the window, did the airflow really help you concentrate more? Maybe you're somebody who needs to be in a snug room. And beyond that, and I've kind of hinted at this in the beginning, one of the things that's fascinated me is detoxing digitally. And if you're in behavioural science, what we always try to think about when people are having a problem that they want to solve themselves, but for some reason they can't take the action is, how can you change the costs and the benefits of the moment of being in a particular environment? And for my digital environment, everything that I do on a day-to-day basis tries to increase the costs of me procrastinating through checking emails, surfing the web, and decrease the benefits. So I want the benefits to be absolutely, absolutely as low as possible. And I think if the audience can play with that, they will find themselves very quickly in an environment... Um, that will help them work. And the last thing that I'll say, which I think can struggle particularly, you know, I'm in London at the moment and accommodation is expensive. So I appreciate having a room to yourself as an office might not necessarily be an option. But having a space where you always work has been shown to be a great way to get into flow and get into kind of um, a a creative mode very, very quickly. And it doesn't necessarily need to be your own home. So it could be the same seat in a coffee shop that you go to for three or four hours a day. It could be the bench within a park where you actually enjoy that kind of greenery and, and the fresh air, which has been shown to be good for actually getting work done. But that repetition and that routine is really important for embedding habits because a lot of what we do is unconscious. And if you can go somewhere and your unconscious mind knows you should be working, you should be creative, you're really helping yourself and getting on that journey.
3: Yeah, exactly. And it's also like, I guess when it comes to logging off, it's having that separation. So whilst we have an office on the top floor, I predominantly work down here for the reasons that you you highlighted. I've got the plant that's just behind me there outside. I've got my garden and um, yeah, kind of sitting here makes me feel calmer so it makes me kind of you get the natural light in so you get the ability to sit and focus and yeah this is even though we've spent quite a lot on building out an office uh, this is where this is where predominantly work um yeah I think also it's looking at the environment and you know you you mentioned about the digital detox and that was really intriguing because yeah I, I think at the moment a lot of us find it difficult to, whilst we're probably the most connected we've ever been, it's quite difficult to disconnect. So we have like our mobile phones will be plugged into the bedside table um, in a plug below uh, near our bed and like that in itself, those like um, unnatural lights and the time in which you, you set yourself off to sleep.
2: Yes, no, I absolutely agree with it. So in, I, I, I write a chapter on resilience, which was written before COVID, actually. But I think it became even more relevant during COVID when people were kind of depleted when it came to resilience. And one of the big lessons, if you want to be a resilient person, is to really get a handle on your sleep. So to have a sleep environment that's conducive to sleep is exactly in what you just described. It includes not having light like your phone um, within the room with you having time to wind down that doesn't have um, stimulating activities like watching the television, watching emails. For some of us, including me, reading a book as well is something that will actually make it much more difficult to sleep. And really learning how many hours you need to sleep because I think sleep is quite personal depending on who you are. Most of us need somewhere between six and nine hours, but knowing what you actually need to be optimal on a particular day um, is really being kind to yourself, but it also allows you to be more productive
3: yeah and i think you know we can use technology in respect to the benefit here like there's there's things such as like whoop or whoop i think it's called and, yeah. and that's a great that's a great um bit of software and also it's the ability to do that self-reflection piece in respect to um you know from resilience like in terms of high and low resilience and also how can we kind of monitor and measure resilience
2: yes and I, you know, in the book, and if people don't want to buy the book, I'm happy to give it to them. There's a short quiz in which you can actually monitor your resilience, and I think it's quite interesting to do that as a benchmark. And then maybe once a month, or if you're feeling slightly poorly, to check to see whether or not you've had you've had a decline. But I think more than that, focusing on things that will make sure that you that are well-being enhancing and don't deplete your resilience is really important. Um, you know, one of the examples that I give is not comparing yourself to others. We are in this a society where it's really easy for me to compare myself to pretty much everyone. And it's very easy to find hundreds and hundreds of people who are doing better than me at any one stage in time. And what's interesting in psychology is that people who compare themselves to others, even if they reach their benchmark and they reach the other, they set about finding somebody else in order to keep up with and that makes for a very miserable existence if all you are is on a treadmill trying to keep up with other people then you're never really kind of serving yourself and you're never really serving serving your purpose in life so I think paying attention to that is really important and I think also paying attention to how you deal with small punches that come away come along in life you know so we're constantly, you know, in, in, everyone is stressed in society. So most people won't go through a week before having, without having an encounter with a friend, family member, or even a stranger that leaves them feeling a bit crappy, to be honest, and learning how to shrug that off in a way that doesn't make you a punching bag, I think is is, is again something else. And I, I talk about in the book the idea that we we shouldn't rely so much on first impressions anymore because every time we meet someone, we don't necessarily know what's going on in their life. Oh, so if you meet, yeah. So if you meet someone who happens to be rude, I think letting them letting them off the hook um, once it's you know it's kind of a fool me once and then fool me twice. So give them that that ex- giving them, giving them that second shot is not just good for them it's good for you because carrying that negativity from these kind of one encounters that we have with strangers or people that we're meeting for the first time has been shown to deplete resilience and actually really ruin your day.
3: Yeah exactly and I think if you have that ability to you know be empathetic, be caring for um, your fellow human being then we have the opportunity to kind of set the tone of where we want society to go and also, when you know it's it's holding yourself accountable rather than kind of comparing yourself to others, because that was one of the biggest things that in respect to me, like historically, I would always want to you know progress, look towards the next level of um, development in my career journey, and up and up and up and up, and it's what are they doing, what can I need to do to kind of get to that level, and actually, you get more benefit in respect to progression from an individual stance to a professional stance when you're able to kind of sit back and go well, actually what's important to me what's what what value do I want to add to society what do I want to kind of achieve in the coming years and if you're able to kind of sit back and set these kind of either conscious or unconscious goals that you want to achieve what and how are you going to kind of go along progressing that journey and the constant day in, day out um, ability to learn and reflect on those learnings. Like in the book, you talk about how you're not a much of a journaler, but you still spend time on, say, a Sunday sitting back and, you know, spending like 15 minutes reflecting on the on the week. And I think if we're able to do that, then I think going forward we'll be happier, more wiser, more more rounded people. And it's just shifting away from the premise of the end result, right? Because the beauty is in the is in the journey.
2: It is. And I think, unfortunately, so much of society suggests that you should be getting to the end of the line. So, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you should be getting sold to a a big company. If you're in a big company, you should be becoming a managing director. If you're in a university, you should be becoming a professor. If you're in another place, you should be earning a certain amount of money. And we kind of focus on these kind of status driven objectives. And very few of us actually question why. So is that actually something that you really want for yourself? is it helpful for yourself? Will it make you happy? Will it actually make you financially secure? Will it make you sick? Because you see people who chase these goals as society tells them that they should chase. um, And they can actually end up quite ill if it isn't actually in line with what they should be doing for themselves. So that questioning, I think, can come about when you say, in five years' time, if everything worked out, what would I actually, what would I be doing on a day-to-day basis? And what would those tasks look like? And then making trade-offs, you know, there's this whole move in China at the moment, which is called um, the 996 movement, where um, younger people are basically saying that they're sick sick of working nine hours a day, six days a week. And I really, I really respect that because, you know, they're on a treadmill, education prices are increasing, houses prices are increasing, affording a very kind of reasonable lifestyle is becoming much more difficult and really evaluating actually, is there another way? So is there another way to serve myself and, and to serve society?
3: Exactly, and it's it's that kind of trade off—the money versus happiness correlation versus happiness over the course of your life—and you know, defining yeah. defining what what's important to you. Um, and I think when you you know you're able to take that step back, like I've done it in my career, and I was able to take that step back, and um, it's driving the work that I do today. And also, I, I make sure to have time for my family and, and my friends and and make sure that you have that balance because if you don't have the balance, it can lead to quite quite negative patterns and, um, you know, events taking place. So it's it's looking holistically, I think, uh, about the wider issues.
2: I work at LSE with a lot of happiness economists and they always talk about, this makes you happy, that makes you happy. And I really don't believe them, even though they are my good friends. And what I really think about is if folk can think about what their values are, and live life with with that's their integrity, as they've defined themselves. So live life in that particular way, and work in that particular way, find a job that really aligns with your values, whatever they are. So whether it's serving society or earning more money, whatever they are, I think that's what brings this kind of contentment that folks search for. But as soon as you start searching for it and making tweaks to your life to be happy, I think you end up quite miserable, to be very honest. I think, you know, Um, my reading of the literature is that it's definitely not clear-cut and integrity is a much much clearer cut route to having a life that's worth living
3: yeah I think it's it's having that ability to think back and think it might not be individual purpose but If you're able to provide something to a greater event to um, a greater movement to greater change taking place then there's a lot of correlation between people's happiness and um, events that are much bigger than themselves I think one of the challenges we have as individuals is we've lived for quite a proportion of time now within an individualistic mentality that kind of mindset um, which has driven I think a lot of people to periods of like crisis and change and you know, it's, I think that's why now there's so, such a striving towards emotional connectivity and through the content that people create. It's interesting the in the work that you do, because not only is it the book and your work at LSE, but it's also I was really intrigued to find out a little bit more as to what you do for the government, because you currently sit on the productivity and skills body, which is part of the Leveling Up agenda. So just tell me a little bit more about what that means and what's involved.
2: Yeah, so this is a board that was um, set up actually under Gavin Williamson when he was Secretary of State. And and the idea behind it is to really think clearly about what are the skills that are needed for the future. So it involves talking to a lot of businesses, actually, about kind of failures of the past um, in in the delivery and thinking about how they can actually be provided to people in Britain in a way that works for them. And I think one thing that's really cool about the levelling up agenda, and I really hope that they manage to execute this, is something that I've been banging on for a long time is that it shouldn't just be when you're 18, you choose a career and that's the end of it. And what's really neat about this is that they are have recognised that and are, now will say you can choose to go to university when you're 26, when you're 27, and there will be funding there for continuous education. And assuming that is all, those promises are actually kept, I think that would be a great thing for Britain because it means two things. Firstly, it means that the pressure on kids when they're that age, 17, 18, to make a decision for the rest of their life comes off their shoulders. But secondly, the way the world is going, the skills that we're needing are changing at a really rapid pace. It's very hard for people like me or for policymakers, or even indeed for people who are developing the technology to know how it will disrupt the labour market. So we find ourselves needing all these kind of new skills and it enables actually a way to deliver them in in a flexible way. And our advice has been getting a handle on the skills that will be needed. And also thinking about um, whether or not the policy that's in place to deliver those skills is fit for purpose.
3: Yeah, Exactly. And and you talk about purpose and that's kind of the next thing I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on. Because if we look at what's taken place over the last two years, there's been a lot of various different levels of crises, be that from the coronavirus to what's taking place in Ukraine now and equally to the UK in respect to the cost of living crisis that's about to hit what is your opinion in respect to what government are doing at the moment versus the demands placed on society and, and how aligned are those viewpoints? Because it looks to me like they're not really aligned and they don't really get or grasp the true impact of the issues at hand. Um, you know, We saw just the other day, for example, like Rishi Sunak with his um, budget talking about actually some of the elements that he's going to implement, but also there was a study by a think tank that... Brought out that there's 1.3 million people that were going to go into extreme poverty, 500,000 of those being children. Knowing that, I I don't understand how that didn't lead to to, to more progressive change that was going to help those people rather than hinder.
2: I don't understand it either, but I would give you my understanding of it at, at this moment in time. So I think the first problem is that the government does lack diversity. So the people who need to be served by the government aren't represented in the government. And that feels like an obvious thing to say because so many people say it, but it's the fund, I think the one big shift that you will get understanding what it actually means to be food insecure, understanding what it means to be fuel insecure will only come if you have people who have lived a life like that sitting in the government and also continue to reach out to the communities that are going through that in the current day. So I think that's definitely the first thing. I think the second thing is that, you know, What I would love the UK government to do is to realise that when people are criticising them, it's because they're scared, it's because they're fearful and they really want a different course of action and to open the door to that. And very often in the UK government and in most of the governments around the world that I know of, that doesn't happen. So in some ways, things get more insulated. So the diversity that I spoke about in the beginning, even getting those voices through becomes very, very, becomes very, very difficult. And I think the third part, which is, really, which is fundamentally very, very depressing, is that whether we admit it or not, a lot of these political decisions do end up being made with voting in mind. So it's kind of, let's save our own skin. Um, and I would never want to live in a dictatorship because I don't think that's necessarily the answer. But I do think some of this will fundamentally fall away if you had that diversity that are sitting there. So it isn't a great answer. And in some ways, given that this, what I've said to you has been said for many years in Britain and in lots of other countries, it's, 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 it's devastating that the same things come up again and again and again. But I wasn't surprised that we were let down in the budget, to, yeah. to, to, to be very honest. I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. And, and I, I would hope that there would be a turnaround, but I wouldn't hold that hope.
3: Yeah, and I think the important thing is that it's you know, some sometimes people think that you're being overly critical of the government, but actually, it's that honest critique, right? If you saw it in the in the business place, you would provide that kind of critical friend viewpoint, because what we want to see is a society that's fit for all, and we want to see progression going forward. And when you talk about um, a lot of decision making is done in respect to that that viewpoint on voting and future elections. I was listening to the Rest is Politics podcast the other day, and I really enjoy that podcast because it has that ability to have people from two different parties, but allow for more of an adult conversation. Like, I think where we are at the moment, we we often get into conflict with people because we're from different opinions. But I think that diversity is needed. Um, If you look at I did a podcast a while ago with Juliet, who founded Good Energy. Um, One of the things that I was really encouraged by what they did, and I I constantly talk to clients about the same thing, is uh, about they implemented a thing called a youth board. So they're talking to people from a variety of different background settings, age groups, et cetera. So that kind of age old archaic principle of like mandates, top-down mandates is being overshadowed now because they're engaging with people. It's it's kind of moved beyond the the Milton Freeman viewpoint of, of um, how everything should be done for shareholder value to now everybody is an active stakeholder in the continued progression and develop of a, development of an organization. So I think it's just opening the doors, right? Opening the doors to be reflective to allow for new opinions to come into play be fully aware that they could be from differing viewpoints but that's a good thing because that remo- removes the whole like unconscious bias and all, all of those like biases that can be formed through just a single-minded viewpoint so I think there's a lot we can do but yeah I think there's a lot more in respect to transparency and I guess like trust right People are, are are distrusting of a lot of, not just the UK, like a lot of governments throughout the world, there's a lot of issues with trust. Like the Alderman Trust Barometer did a great study in this, um, highlighting that the trust capital in governments is at probably an all-time low. But, you know, it's looking at implications. It's looking at the, r- the root causes of what's going to happen with their actions if they implement these policies and being pr- more proactive to things that is taking place around them. talked about it a few times in previous podcasts, but I'd love to get your viewpoints on things like the Great Resignation, for example.
2: Yeah, so I don't I don't call it the Great Resignation, I call it the Great Reshuffle. I get asked by, by journalists about this all the time. So people aren't resigning, they're moving somewhere else. And I think that's fundamentally different. And it looks like there's a lot of shuffle across occupations, so people moving occupations. There's a lot of sh- shuffle across sectors, if you look at the data, and there's also a lot of shuffle into um entrepreneurship or being self-employed, depending on what the person's preferences are. And I think what's really interesting about this is that it does look like COVID-19 fundamentally altered how we think about work. It did two things, I think. It, it gave people a taste of work-life balance who didn't have a taste of work-life balance previously, but it also made death really salient. So, you know, in the beginning of COVID, having to look at death statistics, and look at people who were dying for COVID, it was really harrowing, you know, for people and, and did make them reassess their lives. So at the moment we're going through this transition phase where people are moving trying to find a company trying to find a position trying to set up something that would allow them live the life that they need and probably sacrificing some income for that so kind of giving up some money in order to have more amenities in terms of work-life balance and and where that ends up is really is 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 for me as somebody who studies kind of these 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 movements around is really really fascinating but there's no clear picture of it yet so you know Goldman Sachs were on the paper again today with David Solomon getting everyone in for a five-day week. They're not losing employees. The employees are saying that they'll leave, but they're not moving. And the reason they're not is because Goldman Sachs pays such a high wage. It's really hard to give that up once you're in it. But companies that don't have the budget that they have at Goldman Sachs are being much better with offering flexibility, offering amenities. And, you know, Goldman Sachs is, is, is a major employer in terms of your opportunity to get into the 1% of income if that's what you want. But in the scope of all the jobs that are offered in society, they're actually a really, really small player. So it's kind of more interesting to look at the labour market as a whole and realise for once, people are kind of searching for work that has nothing to do with money
3: yeah exactly i always talk about it as like the grand awakening rather than the great resignation I like because like we are you know like we've taken we all went into periods of lockdown we all took a moment of reflection sadly some of us our family included lost some um loved ones and you know looking at what's taken place this you know i, I wrote about it when i was at uni talking about how crisis was the catalyst for institutional change in the imf like it's ultimately through periods of crisis, provides periods of reflection and periods of actual um, progressive change. And yeah, whilst we see people like Goldman Sachs doing that currently, I think in the long term, that viewpoint will be stripped away because either by the demands placed on them by society uh, or by the demands placed on them by their employees as kind of people of like my ilk and the gens earlier and later than me kind of progress into senior and middle management and above, yeah, we'll we, we change the very dynamics of these companies and how they operate. So you know, we saw it with P and O and everybody's an uprising about what's taking place in P and O and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, but I guess that, that it's that strival, right, for for profit above all else. And what they don't seem to see is the fact that people switch off for those brands and they'll have it has a much much longer negative impact on their reputation and their their ongoing ability to stay viable within uh, the marketplace. And I think um, they're they're the negative points from how it'll affect businesses. But from a positive side, if you look at, you know, again, with respect to people leaving, there's quite an exodus of people that left London during the pandemic to move to places like Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, up in Newcastle, where I'm based. And I think looking at that, it's good because there's always, in the UK, there's always been that um, North-South divide, right? And um, if we're going to really address that issue, then the spread of talent throughout the country rather than simply isolated within London is going to be a huge um, positive um, effects for, for the UK as well. And and that kind of interlinks back to your role within government and diversity by actually being present in these places, by actually having new business evolve from these places, by ha- actually engaging and having a workforce that's there, then yeah, you have the ability to set the tone within government. Um, I know friends that work within um, the civil service that they would no longer have to be based solely down in, in London or whatever. They can be based wherever, do a little bit of travel, but predominantly from home. And that in itself reflects the work that they're doing in policy. And whilst we we may may or may not have the right government in place at the moment to implement those policies. I think with the benefit of of time comes change and, you know, whether they last another term is a different thing.
2: One thing that I find really interesting is the cling-on to buildings. So even though you're right, that people are commuting from, you know, Newcastle, from Liverpool, from even Glasgow, actually I have a colleague that commutes from Glasgow, and another from Belfast, actually, they're still commuting into the home office in London, right? But I don't think we even need the buildings so much anymore. So I think we need to get together as a team, maybe once a month, once a quarter, every three months, depending on what you're doing. But... The London identity, it doesn't need to be, that, that meet and greet doesn't need to be in London. It can be just somewhere where there's a major airport where it's convenient for folk, you know, to to, to, to get to. And I think when we get there, the legacy of the in-the-office work will be over. So at the moment, we're in this transition phase where, yes, people are offered much more flexibility. However, they're still always brought back to the home to the home satellite. But I think as times go, assuming that people like you don't conform if you stay in a company, which does happen, actually. You personally won't because you've chosen a different path. But if you stay in a company like Goldman Sachs, you do become institutionalized. I hold out glimmers of hope, though, that there are people who are going up the ranks who are kind of playing two hats. So know who they are at home and they'll bring that person to.
1: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
2: Work, once they get to the end of the journey... And then I think the the kind of London-centric thing will come away. But the one thing that I've pushed for is for us to kind of rethink about what we mean for employees. So your employee doesn't need to live within 50 miles of the the office anymore and to really put that out to business. And it hasn't happened, but I do hope either during my term on the board or after that, that it it will. Again, nudging us to have what's happened now as something that's a legacy rather than something that lasts three or four years
3: that's a that's a great place to finish it if if you've got any just final closing thoughts before we close up
2: no i just want to thank everyone for the privilege of their time you know i think time is their precious resource so i hope they've learned something and if anyone wants to reach out to me um please do i'm generally contactable very easily um through google if you look at my name my email is very easy to find
3: perfect thank you so much for your time
2: it's been an absolute pleasure thank you peter i've really loved being on it Thank you for listening to
1: the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made, or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode.